Hi, I'm Olaomi Brigway, and I began to experience all-round supernatural success in my life when I finally accepted that no matter how hard a person works, they will never rise above their level of thinking. Are you looking for transformation from the inside out? Then join me on the Super Abundant Life podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Super Abundant Life podcast, where we tackle real issues by examining the lives of real people and extracting real life solutions that are rooted in the wisdom of God. This is your host, Olaomi Brigway. Today, we're going to be talking about the downside of having high expectations. The downside of having high expectations. Now, you may be thinking, what? Wait a minute. Could there be a downside to having high expectations? I mean, well, you know, we encourage our children to have high expectations. We encourage ourselves to have high expectations. So could there be anything wrong with that? Well, for the most part, it is good because it helps us raise our own standards and to reach for better and for higher. But where we begin to have problems with high expectations is if there is a tendency to become very difficult to please. So the little things don't matter to us anymore. It has to be the big things. Or if I don't double my income in one year, then forget it. It doesn't matter if I've grown, if I have acquired more skills, the little things begin to be you know, despised. So that's one of the areas that we're looking at today. It's good to have our expectations, but there's also a downside to it, all right? Now, the thing is, it's easy to take it too far as well. So if I set high standards for myself and for others, um, it's very easy to begin to think, okay, this is not enough anymore. Any little thing or small wins that come along the way will not necessarily satisfy because I set my sights so high that anything in between will not necessarily satisfy. And if it's not some superhuman achievement, then you postpone your happiness. If you understand what I mean, you postpone your happiness until this happens, then I will celebrate until this happens. I can't celebrate. I can't really enjoy my life. And the point is the process is more important than the outcome. So if you can't find a way to enjoy the process and the small wins along the way, then you're going to honestly live, you know, quite a miserable life because until I finally achieve my goal, I'm not going to be happy. So that's why we're looking at the downside of having high expectations today. And to help me study the downsides of this particular character is someone called Nabal from the Bible. So Nabal is, I'm going to be studying the Bible from 1 Samuel 25. So everything we're reading today is from 1 Samuel 25. I love to go into the Bible because essentially it is the book of wisdom. We don't read the Bible to mark a register or a router to say, yes, I've done it. Now God can bless me. No, literally every story, everything written there, the Bible says is for our own admonition, meaning it's for our own life lessons. So anytime I read about a character in the Bible, I'm not just thinking, oh, this guy did this, that guy did that. Did that. I can literally go into it and say, 
if they did that under that circumstance, how can I relate it to where I am today, to my own life? And how can I avoid the mistakes that they made? Or how can I learn from their own wisdom to achieve the kind of success that they achieved? All right, so let's get started. We're looking at the guy called Nabal. And um, let's see what the Bible says about him. As we read through the Bible, I'm going to be extracting lessons that we can apply to our own lives, even in today's world. So 1 Samuel 25 from verse 2 says, There was a wealthy man who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep rearing time. So this man was wealthy, all right? If he had 3,000 sheep, right? You know, I don't know what the equivalent of that would be. Um, but, but remember, in that economy, that's what they did. So if most people would have maybe two or three or maybe 10 or something, and he had 3,000. So we're comparing him probably to one of, the, one of the wealthiest people, the names that will come up when we talk about wealthy people in our day today. So he was very wealthy. All right. Now, it says the man's name was Nabal and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal was crude and mean in all his dealings. Now, the first thing I want <laughs> that I see straight away, right? Um, and, you know, that I see straight away in this is this. It talks about the husband, which is Nabal, and he says that he's crude, he's churlish. You know, looking at different translations, these are the words that were used to describe Nabal. He said he was crude, he was churlish, he was mean, he was difficult to work with or to deal with right? That was how the Bible described it. So it was someone that was very difficult to please. He didn't really find joy in anything. He found, you know, he found pleasure in actually putting people down. That was the kind of character that Nabal was. Now look at his wife. In the very same sentence, right? It says that his wife was sensible. She had good insights, good intelligence, and she was beautiful. <laughs> now think about it. Could these two people have been any more opposite, right? Could they have been any more opposite? Now, the first thing I want us to see here is this. I don't think it was a coincidence that Nabal ended up marrying someone like Abigail. And I'm going to, the first lesson that I've been able to extract from this, the first thing that I'm seeing from this partnership is this, right? It wasn't a coincidence because when we go into relationships, whether it's marriage, whether it is close friendship, whether it is whatever it is, like a mentor-mentee relationship, whatever, the thing is you tend to attract what you need, okay? You don't, you don't go into a relationship because, oh, we're exactly the same. We think the same way. Everything is exactly the same, right? You attract what you need. So marriage really, or a relationship, a close relationship with a friend or like a mental mentee is an opportunity to complement and not to clone. Marriage is an opportunity to complement and not to clone. Now, wh what do I mean by that? What I mean is, if you notice, if you look around, you know, in terms of marriages or friendship, close friendships that are sort of building each other up, etc., you will notice that 
they most likely will have different personalities. So one person might be an extrovert and the other person might be an introvert. One person might be really strong in one area, maybe with numbers and with finances. The other person might be like, well, you know, I, <laughs> I don't even want to look at numbers or whatever it is. The thing is, it is our differences that actually attract us. We, we tend to forget that when we get into marriage, especially. We forget that it is our differences that attract us to each other. And what tends to happen is once we cross that threshold from courtship into marriage, we now begin to despise the thing that attracted us in the first place. All right. I've seen it's so common. All right. It is, it is, <laughs> it tends to happen in almost every marriage. The very thing that attracted this guy to you, right? Once you get on the other side and you become married to him or to her, all right, it works both ways. We begin to despise it. You think, why are you so loud? Why are you like this? Why are you like that? Can't you be more like me? Can't you be more like me? Okay. <laughs> and we try and clone ourselves in that person. So rather than thinking, okay, the reason why this person is different is because we can complement each other. My strengths will make up for his weaknesses and his strengths will make up for my weaknesses. We begin to think, oh, I'm strong in this particular area. You're weak. I need you to become strong. Why are you so weak? Why are you so weak? And we begin to point fingers and we begin to try to clone ourselves in that person. That is not the purpose of relationship. And I saw that just in the couple of sentences as they described Nabal, right? And his wife, Abigail, they were so opposite. They were so opposite. Now, let me say this. I'll read, I'll read the scripture to you just to explain what I'm saying. Ephesians 4.16 says, God makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Now, if you think about this, if two things are exactly the same. So if you want to put, they talk about a round peg in a round hole. You can't put a round peg in a round peg, if that makes sense. You can't insert them together. One has to be a hole, one has to be a peg for it to actually fit. So you have to be different. He says, God makes the whole body fit together perfectly. So even if this one looks different, that one looks different. Once I bring them together, they actually fit perfectly. That's God's plan for marriage. Or it also extends to the kind of relationships that I mentioned earlier. Let me keep reading. And it says, as each part does its own special work, right? So each person has their own gifts and talents. We're not all the same. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So we're thinking about the fact that Nabal was described as being crude, churlish, mean, difficult to work with, difficult to deal with. He was a brute. That's what the Bible called him. But he had a wife that was sensible of good insight and beautiful. Now, why would those two people come together in marriage? It's so that they can grow together, feed off each other. Now, you have to understand that even though Nabal had those characters, there were also good things that he would have brought into the marriage as well. Probably things like good business sense. He was probably very good financially, being able to manage finances. So nobody is all bad and nobody is all good. So strengths and weaknesses come together to complement. Marriage is an opportunity to complement the person, not to clone yourself, not to turn them into you saying, oh, 
because I am strong in this particular area, you have to come over to my side and be strong as well. I will read that scripture again because it just encapsulates everything that I'm saying. Ephesians 4.16, God makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That is God's plan for relationships. When you enter into any kind of special relationship with anyone, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in a close friendship, mentor-mentee relationship, whatever it is, parent-child relationship, you have to understand that you're not trying to clone yourself. You're looking at the differences. You should look at the differences as a gift from God to help you grow and to also help the other person grow so that that relationship becomes healthy and perfect. That's what God said. So what is my first lesson? What's the very first thing that I picked up from the life of Nabal just by reading about his, his personality and also his wife's personality? The first thing is this, see and celebrate the differences in your relationships as tools designed to help both parties to grow and to excel. I'll say that again, see and celebrate the differences in your relationships as tools designed by God to help both parties to grow and to excel. The person is not trying to annoy you. That's how they are. Now, it doesn't mean that they will stay that way. Maybe you are more patient, right? And the person is not very patient, but maybe they have, well, not maybe, certainly they have other qualities that you are quite weak in as well. So by complimenting each other, that is actually why that person is in your life. Now, not, it doesn't always play out to the point that people see this way. In fact, most people don't see it this way. Most people will attack something that is different. They don't see it as a gift to try and, you know, that has come to sharpen them or to make them grow. That is why we have so many problems in marriages because we begin to attack what is different rather than use it as an opportunity to complement our own weaknesses and to grow. So that was the first thing that I picked up immediately from the life of Nabal. All right, so I'm going to keep going. It now says, um, so, you know, it opens up by telling us about Nabal, who he was, very wealthy man. He had a wife who was beautiful, sensible and all that, but he was churlish. He was very difficult to please. He wasn't, he was a mean man. He was mean. That's what the Bible says. But he also had good business sense because he was wealthy and he ran his business like a tight like a you know like a like a tight ship all right everything was bam 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 right and he was very successful so he had good business sense right okay so let's see how all this now plays out i'm reading from first samuel from verse four so king david to give you a bit of a background it was at the time when saul was trying to kill David. He had tried multiple times to kill him uh, because he knew that he was going to be the next king and he didn't want him to be. He wanted his son, Saul wanted his son Jonathan to inherit him. So <laughs> he was trying to get David out of the way, right? So that he, his dynasty could continue. So uh, David had run away from Saul and he was hiding in caves and etc. So this is where we were. So it says that David sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep sharing time. While your shepherds stayed among us, we never harmed them. Nothing was ever stolen from them. 
In fact, day and night, we were like a wall of protection to them and to the sheep. So would you be kind to us since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. So David was literally the next king. Everybody knew that. All right. Everybody knew his story about how he had refused to kill Paul or Saul, how he had refused to attack Saul. He instead, you know, chose to run away and preserve himself. All right. He had options to kill Saul, but he never took them. He neighbor, this guy neighbor <laughs> that this was going to be the next king of Israel. No questions about it. And David basically sent, and because they were hiding, they didn't really have a source of livelihood, right? They were hiding in caves. So he sent a message to this guy and said, could you please, you know, just give us some of the things that you're throwing a party, right? Uh, Because it's harvest time, sheep sharing time. Can you send us some of the food that you guys are using to celebrate in your party? And it was a very polite request. He said it in a very polite way. He didn't try and demand it. He literally said, we helped your, your, your guys. We protected them. Please just reward us with some food. <laughs> right <laughs> now, this was his due reward because of the service that he had rendered. Now it wasn't to, in Nabal's eyes. It probably wasn't much as in who asked you to go and protect them. They were already fine anyway. As he, he was probably thinking, what role did you play? It's not as if you did anything significant, all right? There, there was no danger, he was thinking probably. There was no danger, there was no harm, all right? So why should I pay you? What did I really gain from this? That's probably what he was thinking. He considered David's actions as insignificant, insignificant. Probably thought, I don't care, you know, this has a, what, how much money has this put in my pocket? Because he was very difficult to please and he disregarded the fact that this was actually the next king of Israel. And how did Nabal respond to this? He completely humiliated David. Listen to what he said. He said, who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young man. Who does this son of Jesse? So he knew who David was. He knew. So who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water, my meat that I've slaughtered for my sharers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Now, now think about it. If you think, oh, neighbor, you know, you're so bad, you know, you know how it's easy for us to read some of these things and think, oh, look at this. You know, this, this was so bad. How could he act like that? But let me let me try and bring it home for us in a way that relates to us. Very simple examples. You know how your spouse does something, a little thing. Maybe you have been asking them to do something and you know, like, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. <laughs> and maybe they finally do it, but maybe it's it's not perfect. Or they do it a little thing and they say, Oh, did you did you see, you know, did you see what I did? Did you see that I, I made the bed? <laughs> did you see that I did this or whatever? You know, like, oh, yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> and you just completely wash it aside as if it was nothing. All right. So I'm bringing it home now, not not to think, oh, this was neighbor. That was rude. How could he do that? OK, the thing is, it's very easy for us as well in this day and age to do it. I've just given an example to them, whether it was simple or not, whether 
the way you see it doesn't matter. It's the way they see it. So if your spouse does something that to them, they're proud enough to come and tell you, did you see what I did? You have to meet them at that level. You can't judge and say, oh, so you finally, you know, did this. Me that I've been doing 50 million times better or higher or bigger. And you despise it and you don't acknowledge and you don't affirm them. That is exactly the same thing. It's the same thing as what Nabal did to David. I'll give you more examples. This one is we do it to ourselves. It's called rumination. When you replay your mistakes over and over and over in your mind for days and for weeks. So you make a mistake, you fall short of your high standard and then you will not let it go. You just keep going in your mind over and over again and thinking, oh, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I say it like that? And you are ruminating. It's called ruminating. Just taking that negative, that mistake and rolling it in your mind over and over again. It's the same thing. Why? Because you are, the, the standard that you have set for yourself is too high. Because literally what God requires of us is this. If I make a mistake, then I literally would go to him, receive forgiveness and move on. All right. To move on, not to hold yourself to an impossibly high standard and to keep playing that mistake over and over and over again in your mind. Meaning it's the, it's the little things. You're not willing to appreciate that the fact that, look, it's only a little thing. I can move past this. I can move on from this. Or you're trying to achieve something and you only make a tiny little progress and you're like, oh, it's not even near anything, you know, like that I wanted to achieve. All right. And as a result of that, you just dismiss it. It's the little wins actually that eventually lead to that big outcome that you're looking for. So if you don't get into the habit of appreciating the little steps that you take forward, your little wins, you will get discouraged along the way and you will give up. Another example is, you know how maybe you're leading a team and somebody manages to accomplish something, but maybe they didn't do it the way you wanted them to do it. They didn't achieve it. They didn't go through the process that you wanted them to go through. And you just cannot bring yourself to say, well done or thank you. Why? Because it wasn't perfect. Or your children, when they do something, even though it's not perfect, you can't say, well done. Oh, at least, you know, you gave it everything. <laughs> These are all examples of what Nabal did to David. He just looked at David and said, so what if you protected them? They were not in any danger anyway. So I don't see the effect of this gesture that you're telling me that you carried out. It did not really impact me in any way. It was too little to impact me. So as a result of that, he literally just put it down. He insulted David and he, he, he belittled his efforts. Okay. So <laughs> how did David take all of this? Was it like, Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Um, it's true. Your, your people, your animals in the protection anyway. I just thought I should help them have a good day. Now, at first, when you read, when you read the story, when you read the Bible, it might actually seem as if what David did was irrational. But the more I sat down and I thought about this and I meditated on this, I realized that actually it is the way many, if not all of us respond to harsh criticism. 
All right. Now, remember what Nabal did to David was he criticized him harshly. He basically said, what is this nonsense that you say you've done? It's nothing. To you, it might be a big gesture. I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, it is nothing. It's too little for me to acknowledge. And he belittled him. How do we respond when we are criticized harshly, whether criticizing other people harshly and criticizing ourselves harshly, what is the what is the outcome of that? Let's see what David did. First Samuel 25, 13. <laughs> David, this was his reply, said, get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David. David was going to go and literally level that whole place. Do you know why? Because he felt, um, what's the word? He, he felt insulted. Beyond being insulted, he felt belittled. Like this, this thing that to me was a grand gesture. This to me that, you know, was a big thing that I've done. You've literally taken it and smashed it on the floor and trampled all over it. So he felt the first thing David's response was, I need to defend myself. I need to, in his case, he wanted to defend his honor. Do you, can you see that? So his response immediately was to defend himself. Meaning when we criticize people harshly or we criticize ourselves in the hope to get change, in the hope to help this person, you're saying, I'm helping this person and you're criticizing them and saying, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You need to do better. This is nonsense. You do know what you're capable of. And we're saying it in a critical way that is belittling, hoping that you're trying to build this person up really or yourself. What you're really doing is staring up that propensity for the person to defend themselves. Have you noticed that? When you criticize someone, I say, why he did the first thing you want to do is to defend them. So I say, but, but, but they will want to defend themselves. Most people, unless people that have, you know, learned to take hundred percent responsibility, a lot of people, if not everyone, when you belittle them with harsh words, with harsh criticism, it has the opposite effect. They just want to defend themselves. They want to come up and say, no, but I tried my best, but I did this, but I did that. How come you're always speaking on me and all that? That is how they come across because what they are hearing, right? Is I'm not good enough. What they are really hearing is I'm not good enough. And when we harshly criticize ourselves, what we're really telling ourselves is that we are not good enough. And so what happens, right? The response to harsh criticism is actually not growth. Even though that may be the intention, the response usually is that the person will try and defend that very behavior that you're trying to correct. Can you see that? That was exactly what David did. Once he heard that, he felt belittled. He felt, you know, someone was trampling all over his worth telling him that he wasn't worth anything. And as a result of that, he wanted to defend himself. So what is the second lesson that I've been able to extract from this exchange between David and Nabal? And it's this, harsh criticism belittles and does not inspire growth. It only stirs up an urge to defend and reinforce the very behavior it was intended to change. 
Let me say that again. When we criticize people, so harsh criticism, whether it's to people or to ourselves, it belittles. The aim of harsh criticism, actually the effect of it, I should say, is to belittle. And it does not inspire growth. It only stirs up an urge to defend and to reinforce the very behavior it was intended to change. So if you, if you keep berating yourself, like, oh gosh, what, you're so stupid. Why do you behave this way? You're putting yourself down. All right. The motivation or the intention is to stir yourself up, right? To rise up and do better. But the effect actually is you're actually putting yourself down. And when you try and put, have you ever seen somebody, maybe in a movie or something, some, there's some other person, this is quite grotesque, right? Is <laughs> trying to drown the person and they're pushing their head down. Every instinct in that person rises up to keep pushing, you know, to want to defend themselves, to want to rise. If you push something down, there's a mechanism in them that will want to push you away and say, no, 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 and defend themselves. Okay. It does not inspire growth. All right. So let's, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> so after all this happened, you know, did, you know, David got all his 400 men and started off towards Nabal's home. He was going to destroy everyone. He had decided he was going to kill all the men. He was going to destroy and flatten everything, burn everything to the ground. And fortunately, one of Nabal's servants heard what had happened and went to report it to Abigail. So Abigail, remember, is Nabal's wife. Bible says that she is sensible and all of that. She has good insight. So as soon as she heard, the Bible says that Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered you know, 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins, five sheep and all that. So she gathered all these gifts. That's the first thing. And I want to round this up. I will show you when you want to improve either a person or yourself, this is the way to do it. Not by harsh criticism, not by belittling the little steps forward or yours. Okay. What Abigail did is the right way to do it. And I'm going to show you this now. All right. I'm not talking about gifts, you know, giving gifts, at least not literally. So she, she wasted no time. She gathered all these wonderful gifts. And it's interesting because the Bible says that she didn't tell her husband what she was doing, right? Because obviously he was stubborn and he would have stopped her. He was stubborn and he would have. So what I see in there is, look, it only takes one person to right a wrong. This, this idea of always wanting to get people on your side in order to move forward it's necessary sometimes, but most times it's not. It only takes one person. It literally only takes one person. You're, if you're in a marriage, for example, and you see things a certain way, you don't need to bring your husband on board or your wife on board you, you know, for you to both be on the same side to move forward. If you have come into that understanding and you know this is the right thing to do, it's okay to move forward, all right? Because in this case, if she had wasted time trying to convince Nabal, David would have showed up and killed everybody. She did not have that luxury of trying to win her husband over in that particular situation, right? It was a life and death situation and she was not going to waste any time, any energy trying to convince him, oh, please, why don't you, all right? It only takes one person to right a wrong. Just move forward, 
All right. So, for example, in finances, if you notice that as a family, your finances are just going down the drain and you've been talking to your husband or your wife. Why don't we come together? Why don't we look at the budget? Why don't we do a budget every month and all that? What I've learned from this and also from experience is that why don't you just start? You begin, you begin to set things right. And the other person, when they begin to see the results, will come on board. You don't have to wait until they come on board before you begin. So you do a budget and within the limit of the resources that you control, why don't you start with that? When they begin to see the fruit of it, then it will entice them. It will encourage them to come on board. Time is being wasted when we insist that no, we have to do it together. Okay. We must do it together. You have to be on board. If you're not on board, me too, I'm not doing it. If you can't do it, then me too, I'm not doing it. You know, that kind of, that kind of <laughs> attitude towards it. What happens is time is passing. And I give the example of the finances. You could wake up 20 years from now with the, oh, if you, if you are not going to take it seriously, well, me too, I'm not going to take it seriously. 20 years from now, your marriages, you know, the finances are in complete shambles. Yeah, you know, you're heading towards retirement and you're thinking, oh gosh, we have nothing saved. It takes one person. That's what I saw there. Now it says, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. Wow. <laughs> this is what is called intercession. She had no part in it. She had no, she didn't even know. She didn't know. There's a part in the Bible that said, I didn't even know when the servant came to deliver the message. She knew nothing of this, but she said, she said, I accept all blame in this matter. It links to what I just said earlier. You just take 100% responsibility and move forward. Even if the person is not coming with you, you begin to move forward. You begin to move forward. And when they see the fruits of that behavior, they will join you. This particularly in marriage, particularly in marriage, particularly in marriage. I gave the example of the finances and you think, oh, you know, the spouse is the one that's wasting all the money. This person just when they just, you know, I know that they're wasting money, etc. And you might be the prudent one. I think oh, me too, I can waste money now. Me too, I can go and spend on whatever I want. Abigail shows us here that you have to take 100% responsibility for the outcome of your finances. Even if the other person has not yet come on board. She said, I, I am to blame. So because I am to blame, I am the one that has come, all right, to make it right. She didn't say, please spare me. Go and meet Nabal and kill him. <laughs> Just kill them. Look, I'm innocent. Uh, my children are in a way. I don't know if she had children. But she didn't absorb herself. She was like, I take full responsibility. And she was able to begin to move forward in order to make it right. If she had absorbed herself of responsibility, I said, it's all him. She would never have taken the steps to right the wrong. Okay. He now says, please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. Wow. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty. 
Now listen to this very carefully. This is Abigail still speaking. It says, for you are fighting the Lord's battles and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Now I began to wonder, okay, let me, before I say that, let me, let me, let me just finish reading this. It says, when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. The wisdom of this woman, honestly, let me, let me, let me explain what I am seeing here. So she understands that what David is about to do is wrong. He was about to take a wrong step, right? Remember, he received harsh criticism and instead of that harsh criticism inspiring him to, be, to do better, right? It brought out the worst in him. He wanted to defend himself. So he began making excuses and saying, hey, but it's because I'm this and defending his position. And he was about to do something extremely wrong. Now notice how Abigail actually inspired David to change his mind and do the right thing. What did she do? All right. She began to give David recognition for all the good things he had done, not just with Nabal, but even before in the past, every good thing she knew about David, she began to take and she began to celebrate it and she began to praise him. All right. Let me listen to this. Listen to this again. She said that you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. And remember, everybody knew about the story of David, how Saul basically was terrorizing him, but he refused. He refused to abuse the king. He refused to go up against him. So Abigail went into all of that, went into all the good attributes of David and began to praise him for it. She began to shower praise on him for the good. And that was the only way David was going to be a better person because it was what she said and the way she presented herself that caused David to change his mind. The recognition that Abigail gave David on the good things that he had done in the past actually made him change his mind. How do we relate this to this? It's very simple. You I'm talking about yourself. So this is like double-edged sword. You want the areas of your life, some habits, there might be bad habits that you have and you just want to improve and like, oh God, why am I like this? I've been, I'm reaching for this goal and it's just not working. It's just not working, etc. And on the other side, you have people that you want to see them improve. Maybe a spouse, children, uh, the people that you lead, etc. The natural way, the way we tend to do it is to find fault with everything. So they bring something, say, no, 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 it's not good enough. Why don't you know, you can do better. But the way we say that you can, you can do better is not in an encouraging way. It's actually belittling because this person has produced something and then we stomp all over it. The same way, maybe you say, oh, for the next 30 days, I'm going to commit to this. All right, some sort of personal development and you collapse at day four or something you do it for four days. <laughs> And then you, <laughs> you break the habit. What we tend to do is to begin to berate ourselves. <laughs> Can't you just last 30 days, etc., etc. But we forget that those four days are actually worth gold. 
Because if I begin to tell myself, wow, I was able to go four days, that is awesome. If I can go four days, I can go another day. You know, telling your child, look, if you can do this, this is fantastic. If you can do it this way, then you can go to the next level. That is the way to do it. Harsh criticism, remember, it belittles. And the only effect it would have is the person will begin to defend themselves and to make up excuses just so that you don't put them down. Nobody likes to be pushed down. All right. The way to do it is to recognize. Now, these are not empty promises. The person has done nothing, right? And say, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so this, you're so that. You're the best. Nobody's like you. That's not what I mean. I'm saying reward effort. Recognize. Recognize when someone has actually accomplished, even if it is tiny, if they made a little bit of progress. If you're saying, listen, why don't you, you know, with, with um, us women, one of the things that we tend to, struggle a lot with at home is we say oh my husband doesn't help me at home he doesn't help with the kids da 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 and all that all right and we have this standard that we have set by all means have those high expectations and hold on to your high expectations because the image that you hold on to you will eventually experience right so hold on to it however the fastest way to get the person to that high expectation is to lavish them with praise. So when they do something, if all they do is, oh, without you asking, they made the bed. Without you asking, they just washed the plates or something like that. And you're thinking, you just washed plates once. I mean, I do it 50 times a day. I've been doing it for five years. I've been <laughs> and all those things. The person will just literally go back into that shell and say, ah, how can you know they see what I did? And it does not inspire them to want to help you more. It doesn't inspire them to want to grow. All right. The only thing it does is they will want to defend themselves. And if they as soon as they begin to defend themselves, they're actually defending that behavior and they won't change. So what's the lesson number three that I have extracted from the lives of these people? And this is this. The easiest and the most effective way to bring out the best in the person is to give them praise and recognition where it is due. The easiest and most effective way to bring out the best in the person is to give them praise and recognition where it is due, no matter how small the effect, no matter how small the result is. If it's a tiny little thing to them, it's a big deal. Don't belittle it. Appreciate it. Recognize it. Recognize it. Recognize it. By doing that, they are inspired to want to do more. All right? We raise people up by raising them up, not by putting them down. All right? It doesn't make sense to say, oh, I want to improve, so I'm going to put myself down. I'm going to consistently attack myself and berate myself. No. Nobody goes up by being pushed down. We all go up by being pulled up. To overcome all the challenges, we do it with love and we do it by pulling each other up. So those are the three lessons that I have extracted from the life of Nabal and the people surrounding him and the circumstances surrounding him. And I've also shown why, right, hash Criticism, whether it's self-criticism or criticism of others, is really not the way to go. I'm being difficult to please. So what are those three lessons again? I'm just going to go through and read those three lessons 
to you again. The first one is in our relationships, the differences, the differences that God has put in each person, right, is actually a gift. It is, you don't, marriage, for example, I talked about marriage and I said marriage is meant to complement, all right? It's not meant for cloning. So you're not trying to make this person exactly like you. You're meant to complement each other. So see and celebrate the differences in your marriage, in your relationships generally as tools that are designed to help both parties grow and excel. If we understood this, then there really would not be racism in the world because each person, God has deposited unique things in them or in, in different peoples and races and nations that will bring us all together so that we can grow together in love. The second lesson is that harsh criticism belittles and does not inspire growth. Even if that was usually for, for a lot of people is the intention. You criticize the person harshly because, oh, I want you to do better. Or we criticize ourselves harshly because, oh, I want to do better. But harsh criticism belittles and it does not inspire growth. It only stirs up an urge to defend and reinforce the very behavior it was intended to change. And the last thing is that the easiest way and the most effective way to bring out the best in the person is to give them the praise and the recognition they deserve, right? Where it is due. To give them praise and recognition where it is due. If you want to do better, then you lift people up. If you want someone to improve, then you build them up. You don't push them down. The same thing with ourselves. I will, if the more I build myself up, myself up, the more strength and motivation I have to do better. And the same thing applies to other people. So that is it for today. Studying the life of Nabal and Think, looking at the downside of having high expectations. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Super Abundant Life podcast and I look forward to sharing more insights from the Word of God with you next time. Thank you.